Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. Welcome, everybody, back to another episode of the Animals to the Max podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Okay, I'm excited because today we are going to talk about groundhogs. That is correct. Here in the United States, we celebrate something very interesting. On February 2nd, we celebrate Groundhog's Day, which is crazy to think that we actually have a day in the calendar year that we celebrate a giant rodent. Isn't that fascinating? The legend goes that on February 2nd, if Puxatani Phil, the famous groundhog in Puxatani, I almost said Puxatani, Philadelphia, in Puxatani, Pennsylvania, if Puxafon, okay, I can't even say it. You guys get the point. If this groundhog sees its shadow, there will be six more weeks of winter. If the groundhog does not see its shadow, then we're going to have an early spring. So to explain this more, I invite on our show favorite, John Pulpeter. He is the lead naturalist from the Woodlands Nature Station in Kentucky. And John comes on to talk about groundhogs. He talks about the origin of why we depend on these rodents to predict an early spring or not. I also asked John what it's like caring for a groundhog. At the Woodlands Nature Station, they actually have a groundhog named Clover that was rescued and I had a lot of questions. What is her habitat like? What does Clover like to eat? Does she hibernate? I ask it all. So if you're fascinated what it would be like to care for a groundhog, this is an interesting podcast. Now, I do want to put a disclaimer. Groundhogs do not make good pets. John talks about a groundhog they once rescued named Homer because its old owners fed him sweet tea and oatmeal cookies. And it kind of looked like Homer Simpson because it was bald and fat. So anyway, you'll have to stay tuned. As always, I encourage you as well to join us for the after show. The after show is where you get the full interview and all you have to do for the after show is just head on over to patreon.com slash animals to the max for just a couple dollars. You can support the show and listen to the after show interviews. In the after show, we talk about why many people think groundhogs are dead. We talk about if you can train a groundhog to actually go into a kennel and we go more in depth about groundhogs as pets. I also asked John about the red wolves they currently have at the Woodlands Nature Station. So go ahead and check that out. Also, I encourage you to give the show a rating and a review. It helps just kind of reach more people who are interested in animals. It takes just a couple seconds. Give us that five star rating and maybe write what you like about the show or what you don't like. It doesn't matter. The ratings just help us out. With that said, let's get to it. Let's talk about groundhogs. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Corbin. Thanks for having me back again. Yes. And by the way, listeners, if you had not had a chance, you have to check out John's interview about hummingbirds because it blew my mind. <laughs> I, you know, we, we've got kind of an exciting thing going on in Kentucky this winter, which is I think I t- talked about winter hummingbirds in the previous podcast. And we have an Anna's hummingbird in Louisville, which is a few hours north of land between lakes and the nature station and it's a it's a permanent resident of california so it got blown here by some storm and has been surviving through the winter uh in louisville oh my god and i that's interesting 
Yeah, and, and the only reason it's able to survive is, is it kind of follows around yellow-bellied sap suckers trying to get sap out of the tree. That's where they're getting some natural sugars. They're obviously eating some insects, but they're also uh, some people stick out their hummingbird feeders during the winter months to help some of these weird migrants that you're going to, these erratic migrants that we're seeing. I didn't think they could survive the cold in Kentucky. It gets cold. It does. And, and, you know, being a warm blooded animal, they're able to do some torpor, some, some ability to adjust. Uh, some of Anna's hummingbirds can be found at high elevations. Hmm. Uh, definitely the heat island effect that you're going to find in cities probably helps keep them alive. But if it gets too cold, like below zeros, that kind of thing, I'm sure that that bird's going to unfortunately perish or move on further south Mm -hmm. that's interesting very cool okay now listeners uh don't worry if you want to learn about hummingbirds there's plenty of content but today john we're going to talk about groundhogs for groundhog day yeah it's kind of a fun topic to talk about uh of course here in kentucky and all throughout the eastern united states groundhogs are a pretty common sight they're a pretty common animal and it's a large uh, rodent that we have running around the woods here. Yes, and of course, everyone knows Groundhog Day, which, by the way, I should say is your birthday. That's right. I was born, oddly enough, on Groundhog's Day, and, and I actually get to work with groundhogs on a daily basis. That is so awesome. Now, did, do you know if the groundhog sought shadow on your birthday or not? So our groundhog is particularly bad at predicting weather on Groundhog's Day. Okay. So I would probably go with some of the more local uh, weathermen. Though they're, sometimes their predictions and in recent years have not been as, as great. Puxitani, Phil, the more famous one, has a little bit record, better record than ours. Yeah, and can you let listeners know, and maybe people around the world, because we do have a global audience, people might be confused. Like, what happens if the groundhog sees its shadow? What does it have to do with spring? Can you kind of go into that really quick? Yeah, so Groundhog's Day kind of a, is a fun tradition that dates back you know, to Celtic times in uh, northern Europe. And the tradition was brought here to the United States uh, and kind of celebrated um, uh, on February 2nd, since 1887 was the first official one, and particularly in Puxitani, Pennsylvania. And what it happens is they pull out Puxitani Phil, who's the famous groundhog, uh, for 134 years now. And uh, if he sees his shadow on February 2nd, then uh, it will be six more weeks of winter. If he does not see his shadow, then it's early spring. Six weeks, spring will come six weeks earlier. And uh, I've, that, I always have to look that up every year, even though I've worked with groundhogs for 25 years. I have to look that up because it seems counterintuitive. If it's a sunny day, that means more winter. And uh, that's kind of a hard concept to kind of understand. And there, I have yet to find the explanation why a sunny day is uh, considered um, a bad omen for for us to have winter. Yeah, and why did they use a groundhog? Do you know? And, and, and if not, no worries. I'm just out of curiosity. Out of all the animals in the world, why did we choose to use a groundhog to predict a spring or late winter? <laughs> so there's a couple of, uh, good reasons for this. Um, one, the Celtic tribes in Northern Europe, which is mainly in Germany, a little bit into England, uh, they used bears for the for when they were predicting the spring and winter. And this happened to fall upon what's called a cross-quarter day. Mm-hmm. So Groundhog's Day falls between the winter solstice and the vernal equinox. So in, in northern Europe, a lot of times people would start seeing 
February 2nd as the first day of spring. And, and bears would start to be waking up at that point. But unfortunately, uh, when Europeans started wiping out bears, they started pulling out badgers and they uh, to, to help predict the weather, to, to kind of do this. Because they were not necessarily hibernate, but they were getting close to, you know, bears obviously hibernate, but they, the badgers would just kind of hole up. And uh, when they when those same uh, ancestors of German immigrants came to the United States in the 1700s, 1800s, they brought some of their traditions with them. Mm. And one of those traditions is the prediction of this weather, because many of them became farmers. And when they got here, they did not decide to go to the old tradition of picking up bears, but they did not see a lot of badgers, and they didn't see hedgehogs, which was also used, but they found groundhogs. And groundhogs happen to have this tendency to hibernate all throughout the winter, and the males will pop up around February 2nd to start scouting that territory and finding out where potential females are. Oh, my God. So it really dates back. That is so interesting to me. Yeah, it, it dates back, and then Christian tradition started adopting the same dates. Uh, they used it for something called the Feast of the Candles, and it's now called Candle Moss in Europe, and that tradition was also brought. So all these things combined made Groundhog's Day something that just kind of popped up in our calendar. It's, it's weird to think, when you look at our calendar, we have holidays that celebrate our fighting men and women. We have holidays that celebrate our loved ones, like Father's Day, Mother's Day, Valentine's Day. And then, and, and then we have holidays that celebrate the, you know, the founding of our country. But then in the middle of winter, we have this random holiday that celebrates a giant rodent. And I always thought that was kind of unique. I love it. And I just have to say, wouldn't the events be so much more interesting if they did still use bears to predict this, <laughs> this spring? Well, you know, it would. And of course, bears are spread a little bit more evenly all throughout the United States, uh, you know, and Canada. Uh, uh, groundhogs are actually not spread all throughout the United States, but there are representative species in different locations all throughout, but they, they don't, they only chose the groundhog. Yeah. Oh no. I think it's interesting. And even as a kid, I always was fascinated and I always loved, I mean, you, you watch the news every groundhog's day here in the United States and you always see Puxa, what is it? Puxatani Phil? Puck, yeah. Puxatani Phil. Puxatani Phil is the groundhog that they've uh, had from 1887. Of course, Puxatani, the town claims that Puxatani, Satani Phil has it's the original one from 134 years ago. He never dies, oh. as the legend goes. And every spring they give him a special dandelion uh, concoction that lengthens his life. So he, to them, they he is still the same. Puxatani Phil as uh, in the 1800s. Okay, so I hate to break it to Puxatani, but that cannot be true. Because, hold on, I'll, I'll tell you what. I have been a little behind the scenes prior to the pandemic. I was just trying to do a segment on the Today Show with a groundhog. And it never worked out. But I remember I was so excited. It was like my third year in a row pitching this groundhog segment. And I called my friends who had this groundhog. And they worked at a rehabilitation center in New Jersey. And they sadly let me know that our groundhog has passed to, to old age. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, So their lifespans aren't really that long. No. So a, a more traditional groundhog has a lifespan of about six to eight years, possibly in the wild. Obviously, it has a lot of predators it has to worry about. Um, my experience with captive groundhogs has been about eight to ten years. I've had, I've worked with three groundhogs. I'm on my third one right now, and she's about four. Uh, but my last one lived to be about ten. Wow. And um, 
So they, 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 I've seen records of them living in captivity as, as long as 14 years. But yeah, they, they're not a long-lived species. Definitely not uh, as long as Puxatani film. Well, I would say being a rodent, though, I guess they live longer than like a mouse or a rat. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, like I think a rat's lifespan, even maybe in captivity, might be about three years. But, yeah. uh, the, you know, being a larger rodent, they they probably have a lot less worries that they than say, some of the smaller ones do. Um, but they, they definitely do, uh, can live a lot longer. You know, they, in the wild, they have a lot of things going for them. Uh, groundhogs are tenacious fighters. Uh, I mean, they, they can fight off a, a lar- large predator easy if they have an opportunity to, um, they have good eyesight, good ears, good sense of smell. You know, uh, they, a lot of times people confuse them with beavers sometimes because mm-hmm. they, they kind of have a, 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 you know, large rodent beaver look. But they can climb trees, which that's a what? key characteristic. Yeah, they're very good at climbing trees. They're a type of squirrel. So they, they whoa, can, whoa, you know, wait. Time, they can climb trees, yeah. John? Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. 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 So when you're like, you know, you're driving down the road, sometimes people will say, I, I think I saw a beaver in a tree. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not. It's, it's actually just a groundhog. They're also good swimmers, too. They're not they're not bad at, at swimming. Uh, so uh, they have a lot of things going for them. They. They're very clever at um, how they put their burrows. You know, they they have a bur- their 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 main entrance to their burrow is a watchtower. So they, they have a big mound of dirt and they kind of sit on top of it um, and and look and use it as a lookout. You know, you kind of see that with you know prairie dogs. You see it with meerkats, kind of thing out mm-hmm. in Africa. But um, and then they have like a lot of secret eg- exits and entrances that it's hard to see. Maybe about two to five. That they, you know, if there's a predator coming that they can dive into. Yeah. Okay. So let and let's actually talk about like physical description of a groundhog because there might be people listening and they might be thinking about a prairie dog or a meerkat. Can we describe the groundhog? Like how much does it weigh? You kind of said it looked like a beaver. Yeah. So the groundhog is one of the larger members of the squirrel family. It is related to prairie dogs, but distant, a little bit more distant. Mm. Uh, it's what we call a marmot. And there are 15 species of marmot all throughout the, the northern hemisphere, most of them in Eurasia. Uh, here in the United States, we have several different species. Uh, the, the main one that most people are familiar with, the one that has the largest range, is the woodchuck or the groundhog. Hmm. And it's mainly found in the eastern United States, possibly all the way to uh, the, you know, the Kansas, Oklahoma border, uh, kind of where the tall grass prairie ends and the short grass prairie starts, begins kind of where the prairie dogs start. And then it goes all across northern Canada and into Alaska a little bit, but is not found in the western United States. It, it weighs about from six to nine pounds for the females mm. and about 10 to uh, 13 pounds for the males. It all depends on uh, what time of year that you find them because they are a hibernator. They are a chestnut brown with kind of a grizzled or frosty Fur to them, their fur is not very soft. It's kind of wiry, mm. being a digger, mm-hmm. and they got huge claws on the front, and then white teeth uh, inside their rodent teeth under the front. They're nine mammals, so they're definitely a rodent. Okay, so they are marmots. Yeah, they're marmot. Yeah, so like in your part of the country, uh, you probably have either the yellow belly marmot or yeah. the hoary marmot, uh, which are two of the more other common species or more mountainous species. Yeah. One of the big differences between them and the the woodchuck 
is or the groundhog is that um, groundhogs tend to live in more low country. They don't tend to live in the mountainous areas. Mm. Uh, They tend to live in, you know, open areas, fence rows. Uh, They don't they're not as social as the marmots that you see in um, the Cascades uh, or in the Rocky Mountains. Those ones have a, a lot more social complexity. Yeah, I remember learning, I think here in Idaho, we have the yellow-bellied marmot, but you would not consider that a groundhog. Technically, that would not be a groundhog? That is technically not a groundhog. It is a marmot, and the groundhogs, mm. another name for it is known as eastern marmot, mm. and of course, its scientific name is Marmota monax, mm. uh, which which is marmot digger, is what the name means. Okay, so the woodchucks, so they're kind of found more in the east, or groundhogs, so that kind of clears up. It's a little confusing, I think. Well, you know, um, one of my favorite things that, you know, as a naturalist, I always like to learn is just all the the odd little colloquial names that people give some of these animals. You know, mm-hmm. some of them got some funny names. You know, of course, uh, it's there's the groundhog. Woodchuck is actually an Algonquin word for the animal. Uh, it's sometimes known as the red monk. Oh. It's known as the whistle pig or whistler because it has a tendency to whistle when it's scared. Uh, so squealer is another term for it. Um, thick woods badger, land beaver oh. are a few other nicknames for this thing. And so as you go to different parts of the country, it's going to get different names. I think the ones that scientists tend to, to land on is woodchuck. Mm. But uh, I've always been fond of Groundhog because of Groundhog Day. Yeah, and Groundhog Day. And I would just want to say how... Like, how predictable are they? Like, I mean, what is, isn't it pretty, I mean, you can't really rely on them, right? No, you can't rely on them because, you know, it's all, the weather is very local when it happens on that day. You know, I've done, just like you, I've I've done a number of different, those TV spots Uh for uh, the local weather people, um, you know, with our, using our groundhog. And it's, it's always actually, it's actually about the worst time of year to pull a groundhog out. Uh, and do this thing because they tend to they tend to be a little bit more um, aggressive at that time period oh, God. Uh, because it's it's getting close to mating season and they're and they're working on territories and they just went through winter so I've it's hard to kind of calm them down and just get them to stay put and, and look at it or uh, uh, it you know and, and definitely you know here in Kentucky it can be kind of cold so I don't usually like to pull the groundhog out in like really cold weather. Uh, just to uh, to predict the we- you know to predict whether it's going to be six weeks more winter or six weeks more spring. Yeah, I was going to say, how do you keep a groundhog? Like, I'm just I'm curious. So the it's uh, when we first started off, you know, I called a number of different locations that had groundhogs and see how they do it. They are a little bit more difficult animal to, to deal with than some of the other ones, but you know, we try to match up with their natural history. And we allow our groundhog to go into hibernation, oh, okay. so to full hibernation. And what we do is we, her outdoor exhibit, uh, she, being a digging animal, has a dig barrier down there. So mm-hmm. she can dig somewhat. But when it gets close to the end of October, November, uh, she starts showing some anxiousness, some, some seasonal anxiety. And she'll start digging. She'll start collecting like leaves and sticks and start building a burrow. But we don't want her to, to hibernate out there because we just don't have the right conditions for her to be successful at it. So what we do is we bring her into an indoor pen in like a storeroom and we keep the temperature in that room about ground temperature here in Kentucky. So about 
45 to 55 degrees. And we allow, we have a, like a, like a, a really sturdy box with a lot of different kinds of um, blankets in it. And she just kind of curls up. We give her a litter pan. We might give her some water. If she does get active, we give her some, some food if she wants to. And we just let her sleep it off. And she'll sleep a lot of times between mostly in November, really deep in December. And usually about mid-January, she'll wake up and be kind of active at that point. And, and then we got we kind of focus on enrichment with her to keep her active while it's still cold outside. Yeah, so do you, do you peek on her every day just to be like, oh, she's every, still every day? Every day. Every day we definitely try to, to, to kind of get an eyeball on her. She, sometimes she doesn't make any kind of movement, uh, but, but we definitely need to check on her every day just to make sure that everything's going okay, that she's going through hi- hibernation uh, well. Because, you know, you just don't get the eyeball like you do when she's active. You don't have that capability. So, I mean, she could totally have some kind of issue that we're not aware of. And, um, you know, we got to be kind of careful. And, you know, the other thing we got to worry about is being a rodent, uh, you know, her teeth continuously grow. So we've got to make sure that we're we're monitoring um, her teeth before she goes into hibernation and definitely when she comes out so that the, she has the ability to still be able to chew on food because rodents always have their teeth growing. Mm-hmm. Do you ever check on her and think, oh, my dear, dear Lord, has she has she passed away? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes. And, 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 and it is. So when we first we were very like nervous parents, you know, when we first yeah. got our first groundhog and put her through her first hibernation. And uh, we consulted a number of different organizations that were similar to us that had done the same thing. But it's still weird because sometimes in the, in the middle of winter, during the middle of hibernation, she'll get out and go use her litter pan. And, and she falls, she'll fall asleep going to the bathroom. Oh, man. And, and, and so you, you're just kind of looking at her like, is she okay? Because she's kind of shaking, she's wobbling, and you touch her. And she's cold to the touch. Oh. She's a mammal, you know. And you know, if you ever touch your dog or your cat, they're always you can feel the warmth, mm-hmm. you know. But not not with the groundhog because they're still kind of not out of true hibernation. And so it's a really eerie feeling, and it's it's unnerving, especially the new staff, because it's very hard to tell is this animal okay or is it, you know, just doing it's what it's supposed to do. So it can be quite difficult. Yeah, I mean, we have, I mean, turtles, red-eared, we have a red-eared slider, and we, and we have box turtles, and we do not hibernate them, we keep them active year-round, we have for years, we just, it it always has made me nervous, like a nervous parent, to put them through hibernation, because there are stories of your animals not waking up from hibernation, why did you guys choose to allow her to go through hibernation, I mean, could you have had her out year-round, or indoors year-round? Yeah. Yeah, and some institutions do. We just didn't have that kind of capability because we're just kind of a smaller facility. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we were worried about keeping her active during that time period. We were uh, because, you know, they, they when they're active, a lot of times they're very active and they want to chew on things. They want to get out and play. They're, you know, it's a constant enrichment and stuff. So and her body was saying to her, I just want to go to sleep, and especially in November mm. and December. And mm. so. Uh, with that first groundhog, we got a lot more confidence and we've been successful. We've never had a groundhog pass away in, in hibernation. In fact, actually all the two groundhogs that have passed away, um, had to be euthanized because of, uh, old age related diseases, natural causes, basically cancer and, 
uh, you know, a few other kidney failure kind of things. Yeah. So I, I mean, I guess it is the most natural thing for her to go through. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, she, and sometimes it's hard not to just let her because she just gets kind of inactive. Now it's, I wouldn't say she's going into their true deep, um, hibernation because you know she's not disappearing for months on end you know like most of them will disappear from october to march mm -hmm. and ours is really only in it for maybe a month maybe a month and even during that month period she'll come out and use the restroom maybe get a drink of water kind of thing mm -hmm. and now that we've been talking about her for so long what is her name the groundhog's name so uh, her name is Clover. She was publicly named uh, by a bunch of school kids. Nice. They had a bunch of choices, and one of them submitted Clover, which was clever because that actually happens to be one of their favorite food items. So That's awesome. And now that we're talking about food, that was an awesome segue. What does Clover eat? So here at the Woodlands Nature Station, we try to give her a, quite a variety of different items to eat. So she loves vegetables, so broccoli, cauliflower, carrots, uh, we also give her some standard rodent chow, which is kind of a hard compressed pellet, uh, pellet which allows her to be able to wear down her teeth. Uh, she loves nuts, particularly shelled peanuts. That's mm -hmm. kind of our, one of the things that we target train her with. And um, out there in the wild, she's going to graze on a lot of different kinds of grasses, uh, clover, alfalfa, timothy. Uh, she also go for a lot of natural fruits, like pawpaw is a very popular item for groundhogs to eat. They'll actually climb the trees to grab the pawpaws. Uh, and if you're not familiar with pawpaw, it's kind of like a tropical fruit found here in the Eastern United States. It's a small tree and uh, sometimes they call it a Missouri banana. It's very, it's very custardly. Oh, and, a uh, pawpaw? I, I, I'm like thinking, you, what in God's name are you talking <laughs> about, John? A pawpaw? We don't have them here in Idaho. Yeah. No, this is, it's related to the mangoes, and it actually is pretty good. You can make uh, people make wine out of it. They make ice cream. <laughs> they make pawpaw bread, like banana bread. Oh, my and, gosh. And, and, and actually, some people try to grow it as a commercial crop because it's, it's native to the south and to the eastern United States. But here, you know, out in the woods, if, if you are interested in getting pawpaws, it's actually kind of hard to find them because the animals will get to them first, like groundhogs. Oh. And so that's one of their favorite items to eat. Okay, and that's why they, they climb the trees for those pawpaws. They do, yeah. Or persimmons is another one that they might eat, which is a sweet fruit that we have around here as well. Okay, so what is what are their temperaments like when you're working with the groundhog? So I find um, my experiences with the groundhog have been that they tend to be uh, fairly easy to work with. Mm most of the year, most of the year seasonally, you know, like when they come out of hibernation and when they're in that, uh, territorial, uh, mating kind of thing, they tend to get a little bit more aggressive. So we tend to be a little bit more hands off at that point. Uh, most of the other year they're very food motivated. Um, so they tend to be a little bit easier. Uh, you gotta be kind of careful because they are a large rodent with large teeth and they can, you know, if you, if you happen to make one upset, they can bite you and it does hurt. Uh, but I also find that they tend to be very associated like with one or two people, one keepers, oh. you know, they tend to really, uh, you know, we have a staff of about six keepers here at the Woodlands Nature Station and, um, our groundhogs tend to like just one or two people, uh, and they don't give them any trouble, but they might give some of the other staff a little bit more trouble kind of thing. 
Yeah, and they have those sharp incisors, right? I mean, it's sharp. They're, I mean, they can go right through you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, if, if we're dealing with the groundhog in, say, like a vaccination situation where they might actually get hurt or uh, where we have to check their teeth and might have to dremble down their teeth, uh, we will, we wear welding gloves, oh very my. thick gloves, because if they do decide that I got hurt and they, you know, they, they stretch out and try to bite you, then it doesn't get to your fingers and stuff. But even then the pressure can be kind of painful in itself. Yeah. They got that, a strong bite. Yeah. Very, very strong bite. How, what is their population status in the wild? So this is kind of an interesting thing, you know, like, um, uh, you know, we're, we, a lot of times we're in. People that care about animals are very focused with with endangered species as we we should be, but there are animals that have actually done better sometimes with with settlement, you know, with the the changing of the landscape. And uh, groundhogs are one of those. Their population is actually higher now uh, than it has been in the past, and that's because that we have changed the landscape to more of their liking. Uh, we've made it more parkland. We've opened up the eastern forest. And they tend to adapt very well to agriculture, as long as the agriculture still has uh, some fence rows, some woodland edges, some some prairie plots. Uh, they they do very well. Groundhogs have, have populations have increased uh, since uh, European settlement. How do you convince people though that groundhogs are good? Because in my experience here in Idaho, people hate. We have gophers out here, which I'm sure you have gophers too. But we have gophers, and they tear apart people's yards, and they have legit companies that specialize in gopher removal and pest control. No, and we have that same problem here. We don't have as many uh, ground squirrels and and burrowing rodents as you guys do. We actually don't have gophers here. Oh, you don't. Uh, or go- or ground squirrels. The the closest thing we have are chipmunks and the groundhog. Okay. Are really the only bur- burrowing larger mammals compared to say mice and stuff like that. But um, the they are considered a nuisance in Kentucky as they are in a lot of states because of the threat to agriculture, um, which gives them the status that they can be hunted at any time of the year. You, you still have to have a hunting license to do it, but. Um, because of the, the threat to like soybean or new corn, maybe a, a garden vegetable, uh, they, they can be kind of a, a threat to them. Uh, now, my thinking has always been, and one of the things that we try to promote here at the Nature Station is, yes, animals can be troublesome. They can, you know, interrupt the, the way that we want to do things, but we are the ones with the bigger brains, and we need to figure out the way to be able to coexist with them because – even if you get rid of that one groundhog, that doesn't mean that your garden is safe, that you, you, you need to make your garden a little bit more groundhog proof because, you know, a month or two months down the line or that following year, you're going to have the same problem. And so we try to promote, you know, people trying to coexist with the animals, maybe trying to, to think about how to fence off their garden, how to, how to protect their, the things that they're caring about. Uh, because they're they're not going to be able to get rid of some of these uh, what what we would call nuisance animals. Yeah, and I love that point. And it's the, kind of the same with all nuisance animals. Another one's going to come in and take the place. You're not going to. It's not a. It's just a temporary solution. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, particularly, you know, here in Kentucky, one of the, you know, one of the big things uh, that really gets uh, people upset is coyotes. Oh God. And one of 
Yeah, and one of the things is if you remove, like if you take out the coyotes, you might end up with more coyotes or you might end up with a more troublesome coyote. Uh, it's the same thing. It's, you've got to look at these animals in a, a different way and, and protect what you care about so that the animal does, you know, it doesn't make it friendly for the animal to be able to, or inviting for the animal to take it. Yeah. Do you mind if I go on a rant really quick, John? Sure. Sure. Okay. So, and listener, we're going to take a little pause from groundhogs because I want to talk about coyotes because here in Idaho, we call them coyotes. I know back East people call them coyotes, but we were, I very rarely scroll. Like I don't scroll through Facebook, Instagram. I'm trying, I try to just focus on um, uploading my content and trying to focus on not like wasting time scrolling online. But I was going, uh, we were at dinner and my wife was scrolling through Facebook and I looked and we saw this this post advertising a coyote killing contest and oh, yeah. it was just it was talking about please come to our first annual coyote killing contest this is a fun free family event and activity whoever brings the most coyotes gets like an ice cream cone i literally could not believe this i was like and i was almost about to like reach out and comment and now i see why people get so worked <laughs> up online and this is why hence i don't scroll but i thought this is so disgusting and so bad i wanted just to Oh, just like rip into these people. And it's so hard because we do live in places where people just hunt them. And I want to let them know that coyotes, like they will literally uh, reproduce more. They can control the amount of pups they have. And so if they realize there's a void in, you know, of coyotes, when they call, they'll reproduce more pups and you're just adding to the problem. It just bothers me. Yeah. And I think, you know, even if you dive into the the scientific data, they'll show, I mean, you, you, for you to be able to control the coyote population, you almost have to wipe them out 70, up to 75 to 80 percent each year for several years to even make a dent. I mean, this is a species that in the West, in the you know the 1900s to about 1960s, I think. I mean, they threw everything in the kitchen sink at them, mm-hmm. and they didn't go away mm-hmm. uh, because these guys are very well adapted at being able to survive. And if you do. Just, you know, like if you do have a problem, Coyote, um, yeah, maybe you need to deal with that particular one. But like if you have Coyotes that aren't causing problems, then that's the best thing you could have because they're, you know, they're, they keep the territory and they keep out the problem ones or the new guys that might cause your problems. And that's what science is finding. Yeah. And there and we I've done a few podcasts on coyotes and they're so interesting. And once again, we like you said, we tried to eradicate them completely and literally it did nothing. They have withstanded us and their populations are growing and they, you know, historically they weren't found all throughout the United States. But because we wiped out predators like the gray wolves, now they are everywhere. And so killing them does not uh, does not help. That's what I love to to tell these people. Yeah, they're now found in 49 out of 50 states. So they yeah. have definitely done better, like the groundhog, uh, with, um, you know, European settlement. Are you not talking, I guess they're not found in Hawaii. Is that the one they're not found in? <laughs> that is the one. They, uh, someday, I believe, coyotes will make it out there. They're going to be eating, you know, pineapple and poi out there, but they're going to oh. get on a plane, a cruise ship, and probably make their way out there someday. Yes, and I, that's another thing. We need to learn to coexist with these animals. I think I mentioned this on another podcast, but my cousin was complaining that this coyote was, because she lives up in the foothills here in Idaho, and she was complaining that this coyote was trying to eat her tiny little dog. And then I went to her house for Christmas, and her fence was like two feet tall. 
I was like, well, of course, this is, are you kidding me? Like, this is, like, it's so, it was literally like a two-foot-tall, tiny little decorative fence. I was like, of course you're going to have problems with something trying to come and eat your little dog. There's no, you know. You will know exactly, you know, and that is, you know, the, I think that because that that's where people, you know, the, those little dogs are part of people's family, and so there's a little bit more of a, uh, a pull to them. But I think the simplest solution for that, because it's not just coyotes that can hurt that little dog. Yeah. It, it could it could be large birds of prey. It could be another dog. It yep. could even be a large house cat. Uh, it could be it could get out and get a, a car could hit it. So yeah. the best thing they could do with those little dogs is just keep them on a leash or monitor them while they're out in the backyard. If, if you're going to leave a two pound, a 10 pound animal out there, well, that's prey. Mm-hmm. That's prey to a lot of different things. So it's best to kind of monitor it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I'm done. I'm, I'm done with my rants about coyotes. <laughs> it just makes me so sick. And I'm sure people have contests with groundhogs and it's just, yeah. But how do you convince John, let's say we have a farmer listening and they were like, John, that's great. Coexisting is great, but they're tearing up my property. What would you tell that farmer? Can you relocate a groundhog? What do you say? So groundhogs can be relocated. They can be live trapped. Oh. Um, obviously, you want to re, you know, you want to avoid maybe the spring and summer months to to re, to live trap them because if you get a female and she has babies, I mean, that, that's that's a little cruel. Uh, but you you want to make sure that you re, if you do release them that you release them in a, a, an appropriate location and, and the landowner that you release this to is okay with it. Uh, but, um, most of the time, what I try to tell people, it all depends on what the situation is. Uh, if, if it's, if the groundhog's really not doing any harm, I try to encourage them to enjoy it, to sit back and watch it and, and, and watch it do its, its natural things. Cause it can be quite comical to, to, to watch. And I have a lot of people that I, I communicate with being a naturalist that, that will always tell me about their, their little groundhog that they named and how they get excited every year they get to see it pop up in the, in the spring, like a, a friendly little neighbor. Uh, but, you know, we kind of think of, you know, a lot of states label them as nuisance and they can become problems for some people. But I think there is an extreme importance of value to them that a lot of people may not understand. They just see them as another part of the ecosystem, but they're actually kind of a critical part of the ecosystem. And that is um, that they provide a lot of habitat for a lot of other species. And I'll give you two big examples that people may not kind of think about when it comes to groundhogs. And this is true of a lot of burrowing mammals. So one of the ecosystems that groundhogs live in is, is prairies. And out here in the Eastern United States, we have the tall grass prairie, which has very thick leaves, very tight, deep roots, very difficult for a lot of animals to be able to dig through. Those groundhogs with their strong teeth and their big claws are able to burrow in there and make large burrows that have multi-chambers that many other species get to use. Snakes, your box turtles, uh, rabbits. In areas that have high populations of groundhogs, you have high population of cottontail rabbits. Uh, Foxes even, skunks, all utilize these burrows. And, you know, if you being a reptile guy, it's kind of like the situation with the gopher tortoise in, in Florida, where the gopher tortoises dig a lot of deep uh, holes, and indigo snakes and t- eastern diamondback snakes, diamondback rattlesnakes get to live in, and a number of other species. Woodpeckers being able to provide homes for bluebirds and screech owls and flying squirrels. Uh, so they, they provide that type of ecological service for a lot of other animals to be able to live in that ecosystem, makes that ecosystem more diverse. The other kind of thing that they do is they upset the, the soil. Mm. Uh, they bring up soil from the bottom, they interrupt the seed bank, 
And in a lot of prairie ecosystems, the grass can kind of dominate an area. So you don't have a lot of forbs, you don't have a lot of herbs, you don't have a lot of wildflowers. And so when that groundhog digs up all that dirt, it's bringing up a lot of different kinds of seeds that are able to, you know, germinate and provide habitat and food resources for a number of other animals, including a lot of butterflies and native bees and pollinators. And without those burrowing mammals, we wouldn't be able to have many of that kind of stuff because the grass would dominate. Yeah. Uh, there was there was a really good study that was done after Mount St. Helens uh, exploded in the 1980s, the volcano that's, I think, in Oregon, Washington, and it covered it with ash. And one of the reasons why Mount St. Helens began to restore itself, became it started working through, is because all the burrowing marmots and ground squirrels that hid when the ash hit the volcano started popping up disturbing that soil and allowing things like trees and wildflowers and other things to start recolonizing that mountain slope. And mm. so that kind of shows you the value of some of these animals. You know, everything has a purpose. I love that. I mean, I, yeah, I love that. Why, you know, they just completely just fit into the ecosystem. They're almost, I don't know if they would be considered a keystone species. I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I, I it, it, it all depends on, on who you, what scientists you're talking to. Right? I consider them <laughs> a keystone species because other animals depend upon them. Sure. And without without them around there, I don't think we would have as diverse of ecosystems here in the eastern United States without them. So, um, you know, the classic keystone species are things like, you know, the, the sea otter and the kelp forest and stuff. But I think we need to broaden that definition because there's a lot more valuable animals out there that we need to be able to, to keep the ecosystems healthy and functioning uh, all, all around us. Absolutely. Okay, John, hit me with your favorite groundhog facts. I've been waiting for this. And by the <laughs> way, you already shocked me with the, with the fact that they can climb trees. I didn't realize that. That's interesting. <laughs> Well, I think one of my favorite ones is kind of talking about hibernation. Hibernation, I mean, there's a vast spectrum of animals that kind of go from hibernation to, to like a torpor or dormancy or just inactivity. Uh, you know, it's kind of hard to define what it's in one of those terms. That it's just so broad. It's kind of hard to define who is a hibernator, and who's a true hibernator. Well, groundhogs are considered one of those true hibernators. And and, and I always thought it's kind of funny when I'm doing programs on groundhogs, I always talk about how everybody's heard of the Atkins diet. They've heard of the, the paleo diet, the South Beach diet. And I'm like, I, I want to see you guys on the groundhog diet because I think I like the groundhog diet because what you do is you can eat whatever you want all summer long. And in your case, Corbin, I know you love pizza. So go ahead and eat all the pizza you want. Yes. And by October, November, what you do is you crawl in the bed and <laughs> You, you sleep till about February, and during that time period, your body will start to slow down. You know, it's, uh, you know it, gets, it keeps warm from that ground temperature, so it's going to drop from about in the 90s to maybe about 40 degrees. And you're only going to breathe about one every six minutes or so, and your heart will beat from 80 uh, times per minute to four. And you do that all winter long, and in the meantime, your body takes that fat that you've collected all the, all that pizza that you've collected all summer long and it converts it into whatever energy to keep it alive during that time period. And then any kind of waste, it turns into muscle. 
So by the time you pop up in February and March, you're ready for swimsuit season. Oh. And I think that is the best thing I could do is sell people on the groundhog diet. I think I need to go on the groundhog diet. I was just, <laughs> a side note, we were just in Michigan visiting my wife's family, and Michigan has the best pizza in the world. John, this is a true story. <laughs> I was there for a week. I gained 10 pounds in a week. I swear, I swear to God, it was just pee. I, yeah, and I even ran every anyway. Side note: I need to go on the groundhog diet. Ten pounds in a week. Oh boy, yeah, the groundhogs. Yeah, have it cool. Hey, what is the for someone listening? What's the difference between hibernation and topor? Like, can we get into that really quick? Can we do like an elementary yeah. version so people just know? Yeah. So, like, hibernation is where you actually your body kind of. On, on a longer term basis, makes some pretty significant biological changes. Like your temperature goes down, mm-hmm. uh, your you know uh, your, your your breathing slows down, your heart rate slows down. Uh, you start dependent upon your fat reserves to be able to keep the, the your low energy alive, and you're and you're inactive for months. Torpor tends to be more fall in a shorter time frame, uh, like usually a 24 hour time period. Like I in the previous podcast talked about hummingbirds. Hummingbirds go through a torpor overnight where they basically shut down their body uh, to be able to, to so because they can't feed all the time during the nighttime. So they, they shut down their body in that 24 hour time period. Um, the, the torpor tends to, to be that more that short term dormancy tends to be they're still active. You know, they might get out to go food, but they are still relying on fat reserves and their body does not make as much biological changes. Yeah, and there was a huge debate. I think there still is, but from what I know about whether bears truly hibernate oh, yeah. or not, and from what I know, the people, a lot of people, like scientists, will say that they don't go through a true hibernation. Yeah, I've heard that too, I, and I've also heard other scientists argue for the opposite. So I am as as, as a little confused as you are. When it comes to bears, I do know that they go through some serious biological changes. I do know that they can wake up in the middle of winter. Uh, I think one of the things I think is crazy about bears is that they will actually give birth during yep. that time period. Yep. Uh, whatever you call it, hibernation or not, you know, and the and the you know the mom's sleeping and then she has wakes up and has two three cubs. Yeah. You know, and they're nursing on her. I just think that that's such a weird thing about them. I think the argument too is that the bear's body temperature doesn't drast, dr- uh, drastic, drastically drop like a squirrel's. And anyway, so there's mm-hmm. people back and forth on it, but I thought that was interesting because you always hear they hibernate and then some people are like, ah, well, they actually don't. They're not true hibernators. I mean, they do go through some sort of dormancy though. So dormancy. Yeah. I, I think I, I know that the ones that they count as true hibernators might be the bats, which that makes yep. sense. Um, and uh, the ground squirrels, like chipmunks, yep. uh, pr- prairie dogs, uh, it, groundhogs, probably marmots too. Mm-hmm. Uh, there may be a few others out there that they might consider true hibernators, but I know that those are the big ones. Awesome, awesome. Well, we are almost at the 45-minute uh, mark. John, will you join me for the after show? I'd love to. Thank you. Oh, of course. Now, John, first of all, where can people find you or find Woodlands Nature Station? You're online. Yeah, so you can go to two places to kind of find out some information about us. Uh, you can go at, on our Facebook page, which is at Woodlands Nature Station, all one word. Uh, we have a little bob- bobcat symbol in the corner. Or you can go to www.landbetweenthelakes.us, which is our, our website. We're one of the we're part of a national forest, so um, you'll see 
us under attractions. Okay, that's awesome. And listeners, I'll put the links in the show notes of John's uh, previous interviews because you've actually been on two other shows about backyard wildlife. We actually talked about red wolves, which was so fascinating. And then you also talked about hummingbirds, which was so cool. Yeah, it's, it's there are a lot of good subjects. Yes, a lot of good subjects. Well, awesome. And listeners, if you want to join us for the after show, all you have to do is head on over to patreon.com slash animals to the max. With that said, John, let's head on over. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.